We have been following the life of Solomon. We've talked about a couple of different compromises in his life. We've talked about many of the things that he's doing right. And as we come to chapter 7, we're going to see some more building. Uh, We saw him building the temple in chapter 6. And uh, what a glorious and magnificent structure that was. And he's going to, in chapter 7, build his house and build some pillars and build some uh, other things for the temple. So we're going to pick up in chapter 7, verse 1 this evening. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all of his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits in width, 50 cubits, and its height was 30 cubits. Length was 100 cubits, width was 50 cubits, and its height was 30 cubits. That's 150 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet high. So in case you're wondering, doing the math, it's a little over 11,000 square feet. So it's a pretty good-sized house, right? Notice how long it took him to build it. It says it took him to build it 13 years. You may not remember the last verse of the previous chapter, but I think it'll have some significance if you'll just look up. In the 11th year, in the month of Bul, which is the 8th month, the house was finished in all its details according to all the plans, so he was 7 years in building it. 7 years to build the temple, 13 years to build his house, Just by way of comparison, this temple structure, while it was magnificent and glorious, was 2,700 square feet, and his home is 11,000 square feet, just over 11,000 square feet. So we're going to talk more about that in just a second, but let's keep reading uh, down to uh, about verse 12. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits, with four rows of cedar pillars, cedar beams on the pillars. It was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on the 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There were windows with beveled frames in three rows, and window was opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and the doorposts had rectangular frames, and the window was opposite the window in three tiers. He also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits. Remember, that's about 18 inches. Uh, and it's with 30 cubits, and in front of them was a portico with pillars, and a canopy was in front of them. He made the hall for the throne, the hall of judgment where he might judge, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the house where he dwelt sure smelled good, I bet. <laughs> the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, he had married, married Pharaoh's daughter as part of that peace treaty. Whom he had taken as a wife. All these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation to the eaves and also on the outside of the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some ten cubits, some eight cubits, and above were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibules of the temple. You say, Rob, you lost me in all that. That's okay. That's the design of Solomon's house. But I wanted to point out a couple things to you. I kind of already started to. uh, The house was called the house of the forest of Lebanon. You can see because it was covered in cedar. It was it was literally had all these pillars that would make you feel like you're practically walking through a forest with all these all these pillars. And it took him quite a bit longer to build his own house, and it was quite a structure. It was a it was a magnificent structure. But I want to just draw your attention to the last part of verse six. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and vestibules of the temple. So in a sense, he was kind of copying some of the, there there was a wall around the court. He's kind of copying what the temple looked like 
And it was this one magnificent compound, if you will. It was this one huge house. It was, it was you know, while the temple was beautiful and glorious and covered, everything was covered in gold, Solomon's house was, was that way too. Solomon's house would have been a glorious place as well. And this complex included this hall of judgment. You know, he asked for wisdom, he got wisdom, and now he wanted a place to exercise it. Come hear me judge. Come, come let me sit on my throne, let you come into my home. Come take a look at what, come, come hear my wisdom is, is in a sense. It, it, it kind of gives off to me a little bit of arrogance. You know, why, why do you need to sit on a throne and pronounce judgment and, and show off your wisdom in such a glorious place? Why couldn't you do it one-on-one? But he, he does have, a, I personally think there's a sense of arrogance there. And interestingly enough, I came across this thought. Do you think the difference between the temple and Solomon's house speak to what was really going on in his heart. Do you think the fact that he had a house that was over 11,000 square feet, the temple was built at 2,000 square feet, do you think it spoke about the things that may have been really important to him? You see, he wanted to build a house for the Lord, and he did that, but I also think that he was really kind of going overboard in his own home. Well, he was a king, right? He deserves that. It's okay, Rob. He's a king. One commentator said this. He said, it does show the place which is his own personal comfort and luxurious tastes had come to occupy in the life of Solomon. It shows how important it was to him that he lived in this type of home. It is often by such simple and unexpected tests that the deepest facts of a human life are revealed. And you can kind of see the idea that this was, this was I mean, do you think people were talking about the temple or do you think they're talking about Solomon's house? What was, the, what was the magnificent building? They were both magnificent. One was overshadowing of the other one. And they were relatively close to each other in distance. They weren't, very, they weren't too far away, so we suspect. Um, and I got to be thinking about it some more. If the buildings, the architecture, the structures, the things they were putting their time, their effort, and their money into says what's important to them, the temple of God, the house that Solomon lives in, I got to thinking about how does that apply for us? What are the things that we build say about our culture? What are the things that we, what, what are our magnificent structures that we build around our country that we look at and go, wow, this is important to us. This is where we want to, we want to, we want to put our time. This is where we want to put our money. This is where we want to put our effort. We're going to get the best craftsmen, the smartest people to build these things. You know, several hundred years ago, it was churches, wasn't it? We live in a town where there's a lot of old churches, and if you go through some of the old churches, isn't it, aren't they just beautiful? I mean, the woodwork, the windows, they're magnificent. They're, they're just they're, they're gorgeous. And you, I've been told if you go to Europe, they're even more magnificent over there. You know, and that's certainly where people were putting things that were important. And you have to be careful because the building can become an idol. You know, and we don't need a building, but you just look at some of this stuff, and it, it says what's important to the people at the time. So I began to think about our culture, and I started thinking, like, well, where, what do we think is important I think we, we put a lot of effort into amusement parks, don't we? You know, you go to Disney World, you go to Universal Studios, Hershey Park, uh, Cedar Point, all the amusement parks. That, you, know, you know how much effort and technology. Go, we're going to find out that there's craftsmen that were pulled from around the area to build these things. And we do that with our amusement parks. We want the best engineers to design the fastest roller coasters, the, the best thrill ride, the most that we get. Because it's important to our culture. I got to thinking, what else is big? What else, are we, what else are we pouring our money into? Shopping malls, right? Mall of the America, right? You can, go, you can have an amusement park and a shopping experience all in one place. We're going to combine the two because they're so important. And what about, what else? Sports 
Sports arenas. Boy, we build those, don't we? Every city, every major city, you're not on the map until you have a sports team. And, and, and all the major cities have more than one. We cover all the sports, you know. Coming out of South Florida, we had football, we had basketball, we had hockey in South Florida. It's never been cold enough for snow or ice down there. We had a hockey team down there. But why? It's, it's what's important to our culture. And what, is all, what do all of those things say to, about us? What are, we, what are we looking for? What? Pleasure, entertainment, right? We want to go see these things. We want to, we want to be, I want to go to the amusement park. I want to be entertained at the sports team. I want to be, that, that's what I'm looking for. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, the properties of our modern culture, they demonstrate, they demonstrate what's important to us. They demonstrate, they show us what's really, really important. Churches, they're closing up. The big churches, they're closing up. Nobody wants them anymore. Even the newer churches don't want the old church buildings. They're too expensive to maintain. They're too expensive to keep. They're, 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 they're go- and, and then, you know, I, I'm not saying we should go out and build big churches. But what I am saying is we need to take a look at our culture and see what's important. But I want to bring it home a little closer. Because if it's true for our culture, wouldn't it also be true for our lives? Couldn't we look at our own life? And couldn't you see what's most important to you? We not, you, no, I don't think anybody in here owns a sports team. We're not building arenas. We're not doing that. But wouldn't you think that the, the biggest investment we make is our home, followed by our car, followed by our pleasure, the things that we seek after? And I got to think about this today, and I thought, man. You know, when I first read this, I'm like, Solomon, what are you doing? Why are you spending 13 years building your house and then this on the Lord? And what's wrong with you, Solomon? And then as I began to kind of go through this process, well, it kind of applies to our culture. Then the Lord just kind of quietly knocked on my heart. He said, it kind of applies to your life. It kind of applies to your own finances, Rob. What are the things that are important to you? Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? How, how much of it is, you know, is for the Lord and how much of it is it for exactly what our culture says for pleasure? Whew, talk about convicting, huh? I thought, wow. I don't, and, and you know what? I, sadly to say, I don't know the answer to that question. I wouldn't know, I, I couldn't give you an exact amount of money that I spend for the Lord. I mean, I could tell you what, what we give to the Lord, but I don't, I don't know comparison what it is for pleasure. I've never thought about that before. And I didn't go back and compare those numbers today, but I am going to go back and compare them. I'm just curious of where I, where I really stand up and really, where I really measure up, because I think that we can make a mistake and we can all get sucked into this amusement park, shopping malls, sports stadiums, and not that any one of those things are wrong to go and enjoy because they're not. But when it becomes the very thing that's driving us, no different than if, if, if a church building is what's driving us, if it becomes the very thing that's driving us, our focus is off a little bit. And we've, we're watching it. Here's Solomon's focus off just a little bit more. Just a little bit more he's off. We keep seeing this, 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 this theme flowing through here. He's off just a little bit. He's off here. He's off, he marries a wife from Egypt. Now his, now he's off, his focus is off just, just a tad bit more. The priorities of our modern culture are demonstrated by what we make our most glorious buildings about. And I would say the same thing is true about your personal life and my personal life. And we need to be careful as followers of Jesus Christ that we're not getting too wrapped up in the things of the world. In the world, not of the world. We have to be here. We're sojourners. We're here for a season. Doesn't mean we can't go to enjoy an amusement park or even a football game or a sports team game. I'm not saying that we can't do that. What I'm saying is we need to make sure our perspective is right and it's not being influenced by the entities or by the culture of the world around us. Otherwise, we could find ourselves in trouble. We'll find ourselves as what we've been called as carnal Christians before, where we say we're Christians, but our life and our decisions don't really match up to what we say. 
You know, so I would just challenge each of you the same way that I myself was challenged today. Hey, where do you line up? If we were to take an account of my checkbook and we were taking account of, well, these days it's a credit card bill usually. Look at your credit card bill. See where your money's going. Look at your, because those are the two resources that usually are most important to us, our money and our what? Our time. Where's your time going? What are you spending your time doing? You know, how much of it is on entertainment versus how much of it is on serving the Lord? How much of it is, you know, Rob, are you trying to get us to volunteer? I'm not. I'm just saying, take an account, take an inventory of your own heart and say, hey, where, where do I fall in this spectrum? Is this something the Lord would speak to me and say, hey, this is something that needs to change. This is something, an area in your life that I, I want to work in, but you need to give me some more time to work. So I just pray today, tonight that you would take that inventory. And, and if, you, if you're fine, if, if, if you say, hey, I'm fine. I, you know, I, I don't ever go to these places. Those places are of the devil. I'm not going. Great. You know? But if you say, I, I spend you know, 12 hours a day watching television, Maybe there needs to be some change in your life. Maybe there needs to be something. I'm not telling you. I'm saying seek the Lord and see what the Lord would have you do in that. Because I'm watching Solomon's life slowly slip away from him because he's making one small compromise after another. And if it can happen to the wisest man in the world, it can happen to you and it can happen to me if we're not careful about it. So when I run across something like this in Scripture, it's not only historical. I look at that and say, Lord, what can you share with me on that? What can you teach me about this life, about his life? Verse 13, now King Solomon sent and he brought Haram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. So what we know about this guy, Haram, he's, he's an incredible bronze worker. He's, spilled, he's filled with skill. He's filled with wisdom. He's got understanding. He's, it was a trade that he was taught to him by his, his father. It was something that where, where Solomon says, he's the best at what he does, and I'm going to bring him to form. And he's going to be making some pillars and some bronze things for the temple. Because we're not talking about Solomon's house anymore. We're kind of going back to the temple and the things that are going to be made in the temple. And I love the fact, and, and you know, we talk about kind of, I, I think, where Solomon falls short. This is where Solomon says, only the best for the Lord. Only the best. I'll, get a, I'll take a guy who's half Jewish, half Gentile, because that's what his, his mother was from uh, the tribe of Dan. His father was from uh, uh, Tyre there. So he's half Jewish, half Gentile. Solomon says, that's okay. I'm going to bring him in, and his talent is going to be working with bronze, and we're going to make some things. He's going to make two large columns. So let's look at verse 15. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high. That's 27 feet. So this is 16 feet, so it's almost twice as high as this roof. I'll give you, just to kind of give you an idea. So 20, this double this would be 32, so you can kind of do the math and figure where 27 feet lies. This room is, I think, 32 feet wide, so it's almost as wide as this room. So just to give you an idea how tall these things are. Uh, they're made of bronze uh, in a line of 12 cubits, which is just under six feet, measure the circumference of each. Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits. That's about seven and a half feet. So you got your, you got your 27 feet plus another seven and a half feet. This brings up to about 34 feet, a little over. Um, the height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. What's a capital? It's that top cap on the pillar. If you think of uh, the best way for me to describe it for you, have you ever seen Roman architecture where the, it's kind of that fluted type top where it's, it's the cap, it, it's, the pillar comes up and then it gets bigger and it's what supports the structure on top of it? That's what he's talking about. That's what the capital is. It's that part on top of it. 
Verse 17, he made lattice work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars. So there's lattice going around them, seven chains for one capital, seven chains for the other capital. So he made the pillars, two rows of pomegranates above the network all around, the, all around to cover the capitals that were on top, and thus he did for the other capital. The capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies, four cubits. Uh, the capitals in the two pillars also had pomegranates above uh, people have said it's above, and it can only be seen by the Lord looking down upon it, by the convex surface which, he was, which was next to the network, and there was 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Notice the intricate detail that's being done here. You know, there's no Dremel tools. You know, this is all cast, poured bronze. It's all carved bronze. It's incredible craftsmanship. It's incredible detailed workmanship. It is, is something that... I don't, I mean, I, maybe there's people that could make something like this today, but, but you're not going to find somebody handy that could, anybody, just anybody could do something like this. You know, part of, part of this, when it says he has wisdom, he had the know-how to do it. He, he understood what it took to make these things. And, and Solomon, in, in his wisdom, is saying, I'm going to give the best to the Lord. I'm going to make these two pillars, and I'm going to call the best guy, and I'm going to have him design the temple. We're, we're, if we're going to do it for God, we're going to do it right. And that should be our heart as well when we do things for the Lord. You know, if we're going to do something for the Lord, we should do it to the best of our ability. You know, we shouldn't do the things that we do for the Lord, well, just give it about 80% effort. You know, yet we, we shouldn't work harder at work than we do for the Lord. You know, it shouldn't be that way. And then he goes and he says, look, let's, let's see how he sets the pillars up. Then he set the pillars up by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin. He set the pillar up on the left, and he called its name Boaz. The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. So you can imagine, as you were to come into the temple, as you would come up the steps, you would see these two pillars. They were, they were made of bronze. They, were, they stood out. They were there, and, and they were actually so prominent, they were given names. They were, they, were, they, were, they were given a name. Jachin was on the right. Boaz was on the left. And you would see these two columns, and, and these names that they were given meant something. It was important. You know, names, names mean something in the Hebrew. When they would name, it, it, it had a purpose. It, there, was a, there was a depth or a definition for it. And the word Jachin that was on the right, it means he shall establish. He shall establish. What a great name for something in front of the house of the Lord. He shall establish. Uh, Boaz uh, means in its strength or in him is strength. So here we have these two pillars. On the right we have Jacob, means he shall establish. On the left we have Boaz, which means in him is strength. Jacob speaks of stability. Boaz speaks of strength. And I thought, man, what two ways. And, and I mean, it doesn't say that their names were on there, but people would have understood this. And what, what an amazing thing. As you come into the temple, you see these two names. He shall establish, and in him is strength. Now, why are these pillars here? Why did he create them? Well, there's a couple of different theories on it. Some people think that he created them to remind the Israelites of the two pillars that led them through the desert. The pillar of uh, cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It was, some people think that's the reason they were there. And that's possible. Others have said, since, uh, since we are the temple of God, that the, the, the pillars represent that we should be surrounded by people, uh, people like this. We should be surrounded by people who will help establish us or people who will help come alongside of us and strengthen us. 
And still others would say that the temple itself was built by God, so it's saying that, that God established it and it was, in God's, it was built in the strength of God. And, and those are all possible, viable options. And I, I ran across one more that I really kind of liked, and this is what it, this is what it means. This is, what I, this is where I, I really kind of grabbed onto. It means this, that the house of God should be the place where you experience what these two pillars say. It's where you will be established, and it's where you will receive your strength. That's what it should be. And it's telling people out front, it's almost like advertising a sign. You want, to, you want strength? Come in. You want to be established on a good foundation? Come in. I thought, man, that needs to be our churches today. That's what we need to be. The house of God, the church should be a place where you go to get established, where you go to get the strength of the Lord through the word of God. You know, that, that's what this needs to be. You know, those in the house of God, those, you know, us as believers, we should be going out, taking, we should come into church, we should be established, we should be strengthened, we should be going out to other people and to our family, our friends, our neighbors, and our community, and we should be telling them, hey, I know where you can get strengthened. I know where you can get established. I know where you can get help for that. I know, I know, where, I, I know what you need. You see, that, that's the advertisement they were putting in the temple. In him is strength, and he will establish. Strength and stability. Establish means that you're stable. You're built on something. You're not going to sway back and forth. You're not going to go back. Try and, you know, every, every time something new blows along, you blow it with it, and you're going back and forth. You know, that, I'm established. Established. And it's interesting, they would be established on the rock of the foundation, wouldn't they? That's how you'd have to set a pillar up on a good foundation. What happens if you build on a bad foundation? It falls down. It falls over. But these pillars would have been established on the good foundation of the rock. And, and I think that even plays into the rock of Jesus Christ. I think as Christians, we should be saying, come here and get established. Come here and get strengthened. Isn't that why we're here tonight? Don't you come here tonight? Don't you come to, whether it's this church or even any other church, I hope you go there to get established and strengthened. That's, what we're, that's, that's, is, that's the purpose for coming to church, to meeting with the Lord and, and learning and, and growing in, in Him and getting that establishment and that strength that we need. I thought, man, how cool is that? They had names. They actually had names given to them. Jacob and Boaz. All right, verse 23. And he made the sea of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was seven and a half cubits. And the line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. What's a sea of bronze? Before I go any further, anybody know what's a sea of bronze? It's a big water tank. It's a big tank. Think of it. It's, it's a round tank. It's where, the, it's where the priest would have ceremonial washed. But it's a really big tank. It's going to hold about 11,000 gallons of water. It's going to be a monster tank. That's what it is. It's a sea of bronze. Verse 24, below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, ten to a cubit and all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows. When it was cast, it stood on twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the, the west, three looking towards the south, and three looking towards the east. The sea was set upon them, all their back parts pointed inward. It was a hand breadth thick. All right, how, how thick is a hand breadth? The width of a hand. So two to four inches maybe? That's pretty thick bronze, isn't it? That's pretty thick. That's how thick it was. A handbreadth thick. Its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. That's 11 and a half gallons. About 11,500 gallons of water. 11,500. It was set upon 12 oxen. 
So they had 12 bronze oxen, three facing north, three facing south, three facing east, three facing west. I guess we haven't got that far yet, have we? We'll get that there in a minute. And, the, and the, this, this, big, this big sea of, of uh, this, this big bowl, we'll say, is just it's set right up on those oxen. And uh, notice the intricacy again. Notice how intricate it is. You know, so often today we don't, we don't, we don't appreciate, we don't see the intricacy that we see, you know, this pulpit here, you see all this, all this woodwork along the front of it was all hand carved. It was built in, it was built around 1900. Uh, somebody bought it at a garage sale for $5 and uh, gave it to us said, Hey, do you want this? And I said, sure, I'll take it. And uh, $5 is what, what was paid for it. But do you know the time that would have gone into carving? There was no Dremel tools. There was no, it was all, it was all done by hand. It was all done back, back, you know, when you had to cut the tree down and dry the wood and, and build it. You know, and we, we kind of lose the appreciation for that. You know, we lose the, the craftsmanship in that. You look at some of the old buildings that just in our, in our town, some of you guys might even live in houses where the woodworking is amazing. A lot of the old baseboards are milled on site with hand planes, you know, because there was, you couldn't go to Lowe's and Home Depot and buy your, your trim wood and all that kind of stuff. You made it while you were there. They had hand planes that you would do it with. The craftsmanship meant something. And here we see the same thing. Incredible craftsmanship. Verse 27. He also made ten carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart. Four cubits its width. Three cubits its height. It was on the design of the carts. And it was the design of the carts. They had panels. And the panels were between frames, and on the panels there were between the frames were lions, oxen, cherubim, and on one of the frames was a pedestal on top. Below the lions and the oxen were wreaths of plated work. Every cart had four bronze wheels and, and, and axles of bronze, and its four feet had supports. Under the lavers were supports of cast bronze, besides each wreath. Its opening inside the crown at the top was on one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round, shaped like, was round, shaped like a pedestal, on one and a half cubits in outside diameter and also the opening were engraved and he goes on and I'm not going to continue reading too much more but they get the idea he's building carts here he's building 10 square carts on these carts would sit smaller uh, seas smaller bowls but they would also use these carts possibly and, and some people suggest for the animal sacrifices it's where they would well they'd cut up the animals and get them ready to go on the altar so they would use these carts for that as well um so that these 10 bronze movable stands or carts, they're used for these kinds of things. He also built, uh, Hiram in verse 40, also builds an altar. Hiram made the lavers and the shovels and the bowls. So Hiram finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars. The two network coverings, the two bowl-shaped capitals which were on top. 400 pomegranates for the two networks. Two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. We know they're on top. The ten carts and the ten lavers of the carts, one sea and the twelve oxen under the sea, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls. He was busy in 13 years. He was, he was real busy doing all this stuff. All these articles which Haram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were uh, burnished bronze in the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zeratan. And the Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many, the weight of the bronze was not determined. And it means there was, so, they could, there was too much to weigh. It wasn't even possible to weigh at all. There were so many, he didn't even bother weigh, weighing them. And Solomon and all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of God, the table of God, which was, at the show, which was the showbread, 
He made the lampstands of pure gold, five of them on the right side, five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmed of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, the censures of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which this father David dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So we see Solomon finishing up building the temple. He, went, he spared no expense. He went to great lengths. He also built himself a magnificent house. And I want to just kind of mention something here. It's interesting to me that David wanted to build the temple. That David had a heart to build the temple. And God's told David, no, you can't build the temple because you've got blood on your hands. Because you're a man of war. But he told David, your son Solomon's going to build the temple. And David went to work storing up stuff for the temple he went to work gathering gold gathering silver gathering all the things that Solomon would need to build the temple just so to help him get ready to build the temple and David never saw the temple built he never saw it but it didn't keep him from preparing for the next generation for what for the work of the next generation I thought man there's a lesson we need to learn there too we need to remember that things, you know, and one other thing that's interesting, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 2, it gives us a list of the things that David stored up. It says, the things that David had stored up for the temple are listed. Gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things to be made of silver, bronze for things to be made of bronze, iron for things to be made of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones, various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. And here's what I think is interesting. There's one thing in that list that's listed in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 that is never mentioned in being used in, the, in Solomon's temple. You see, see, we read about gold, we read about silver, we read about bronze, we read about all of the raw materials that David had stored up for Solomon, but it also says that David stored up iron. And we never read Solomon in the temple using the iron. We never read, we never read of that anywhere. And as we read it, I thought, man... That's kind of weird. David went to all that trouble to store something up. He offered all this stuff to the Lord. Lord, I'm giving all this stuff to you. Use it. But there's a part of it the Lord doesn't use for whatever reason, for, for some, some reason. And I got to thinking about it, and I'm thinking, what? I'm like, I wonder, how would it make me feel if I gave something to the Lord and the Lord didn't use it? I'd feel kind of gypped, I think. I'd feel kind of ripped off, maybe. I'd feel kind of like, wait a minute, God, I did something for you, and, and, there's, and there's nothing happening there. There's nothing, you're, nothing, you're not using it. There are times in our lives when we will go to great effort to do something unto the Lord, but for one reason or another, it will not be used by the Lord. It's a lesson that we need to understand. When we offer something to God, it's not so that we get the expectation or the results that we expect. We have to give it to him without any strings attached. Lord, I'm giving this to you to do with what you please to do with it. And if that happens to be nothing in my lifetime, I'm okay with that. If that happens to be nothing ever, then I'm okay with that as well. It does, it, I'm offering it to you. That's okay if, we don't, if he doesn't use it. Our job is simply to do the best we can to present it to the Lord. Present it to the Lord. The way he wants it to be used is completely and totally up to him. It's completely up to him. Our part is to rejoice in his wisdom, his timing, his plan, and in doing so, we will be wonderfully free. You see, sometimes people will want to make a donation, but they want to attach strings to it. 
Sometimes people want to give something to the church, but they want to attach something. I, I want you to do something with it. And I said, well, you're not giving it to the Lord with the right heart. If you're giving something to God, give it to him. Let him do with what he wants to do it. Let, let him be the one. And, and, and let me give you an idea, just a, just a kind of a thought with this. What about when our lives? Sometimes we expect the Lord to work in a certain way in our lives, don't we? Lord, I'm going to do this for you, and I expect you to do this for me. So I'm going to give you my life, but I want you to fix my marriage. I want you to do this thing. I want you to do that thing. And, and sometimes I've met people who, when they give their life to the Lord, and the Lord doesn't do things exactly the way that they want them to do, or within the time frame that they have in their mind, they then reject the Lord. They say, well, Lord, I, I tried God. You ever met anybody said that? I tried that God thing. It didn't work for me. It's not that it didn't work for you. It's you didn't really try it. You did it under your own pretenses. You did it under your own requirements. Lord, I'm going to give myself to you, but I want you to do what I want to do with it. I want you to do, I want you to do, I want you to do this. And if you don't do this, then I guess there is no God. You didn't do it the way I wanted you to do it. As I began to think more about it, I thought, man, the, the iron was never used. And certainly David wasn't alive to see it being built. But then I thought of my own life, and I think I've been guilty of that sometimes. You know, when we left Florida to plant the church, I thought it would go a certain way. And there was a time, many difficult times early on, where we're kind of wondering, going, Lord, are we really supposed to be here? You know, not doubting whether or not I was supposed to come, but it, did, it wasn't happening the way that I thought it should happen. It wasn't, it wasn't coming together the way that I thought it should come together. And I look back, and it, came, and it brought me to a point, and it brought me to a point where I really had to say, Lord, this is really your work. It's not my work. And it, it, you know, because we have these preconceived notions on what we think the Lord's going to do with something that we offer him. And in my case, I was offering him my family moving from Florida to Cumberland. I think you're going to do this a certain way. And he doesn't do it. So it kind of it brings us down. It brings us low. We, we start asking questions like, Lord, are you really there? Do you really love me? Did you ever really call me? Did, are, you, are you sure you're in this, God? Or, well, I don't know. And then I, you know what I've come to realize is walking that path in that particular example, he's more in it than I ever realized. He, he, he's saying, Rob, you don't understand. If I do it your way, you're not going to get the results that I want to get. You need to do it my way and let me get the results that I want to get. You, you, you know, and, and here, we, here I am, and I'm sure you've been that way where you do something for the Lord, you don't get the results you think you should get, or you go talk to that neighbor about Christ and you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to influence them, I'm going to share with them, and then they just, they look at you like you got six heads or something like that, and you think, well, that was just worthless. Why did God have me do something like that? You know, well, you just might not see the results. David didn't get to build the temple. He just got to store up for it. He just got to store up, and, and oftentimes we're doing that, we're, we're storing up for the next generation and the things of the Lord. You know, we're, and I, I had to come to a place early on in the church that this wasn't my church, it was God's church. I would allow him to be the one to lead, him to be the one that guide. He'll, the, he'll, the, he'll be the one that brings the people. I had people telling me, you need to send out flyers, send out mailers, do all that kind of stuff. To, you need to promote yourself, promote the church. Do, do, you know, you, you got to have a, have, a, have a fall festival, bring the kids in, get, get the kids, you get the parents. That's the, that's the church planning thing, you know, you do that thing. And I said, no, I'm not doing it that way. I'm going to let the Lord bring the people. I already tried it my way. I already tried it man's way. I'm going to let God do it his way. And he's done it his way. I never, you know, church planning isn't go buy a radio station. That's not usually in the church planning manual. But it's something the Lord did with us, which is incredible. By the way, we got three checks from the state prisons today and two letters this week. So the radio station is ministering out in the prisons. From all of them, actually. From the state prisons and the federal prisons and the county detention center. Um, so it, the prisoners are sending us money. 
for being on the radio. So how cool is that? You know, I had no idea that the radio would, I, when we were doing it, I, I, thought, I never thought, well, it's, gonna, it's going to affect the prisons and the people in the prisons. That was something I never really thought of. But yet we've, we're getting letters and, and, you know, usually it's like a $5 check or a $20 check here or there, but they're in prison. They, don't, they can't make any money, but yet they're sending us money. What a blessing. They're sending it to the Lord is who they're sending it to because they're being blessed by what's going out over the airway. Isn't that cool? That's how God works. So he may not do the things in your life, the things that you give him, including your own life, he may not, it may not look the way that you think it would look. And it may even look like he's not using it at all. But trust me, he is. He is. He's doing it better than you think than your plan is. He's doing it better than you could actually think of, better than you could plan it out yourself. It's a much better, much more peaceful, uh, comfortable, joyful way to go is just to walk with him and let him lead and, and play everything out according to his will. It works out much, much better than you trying to do it your way. I've done it. It doesn't work out so good. A couple things tonight. I think we covered three main application points. Uh, the last one we just looked at is our, is our lives and the things that we give to the Lord may not be used at all or may not be used the way that we think that they should be used, but we're st we need to be truly giving them over to him without any strings attached. The other thing is the, the church needs to be a place where you come and get strengthened and where you get established. Where you get strengthened and where you get established. And the, and the first thing that we covered was this idea of you know, what's most important to me? We see what's important to our culture. We kind of see what's important to Solomon in some sense, but really it doesn't matter what's going on in Solomon's life. It doesn't matter what's going on in the culture. What matters is what's going on in my life and what's going on in your life. And if you were to open up your, your life with the Lord tonight and he was to take a look and see how much does the world really play in? How much of it is in you versus how much of the Lord is in you? How much time is with the Lord? How much money is on the things of the Lord? How much, where does the value come from? Where, where, am I, where, where am I putting, where am I storing up my treasures in a sense? My entertainment, has my entertainment, my, my, my entertainment become so important that I'll forsake the things of God just so that I can be entertained? You know, I don't care about the things of God. I'm not going to do the things of God. I'm going to go be entertained over here. You know, I think that's a danger that in our society we have to be very, very careful of because the things of the world creep in very, very quickly. And here's, here's, the, here's the worst part of it. You don't even realize they're creeping in. Because they don't knock on your door and say, hey, I want to take you away from Jesus. They don't knock in, on your front door and go, hey, I'd really like to take you away from Jesus. Sometimes it's people, it's friends, relationships. For single people, if you're dating somebody that's not a Christian, it's not going to work. It's going to fall apart. The Bible's clear on that. It's, if it's pulling you away from the Lord, it's taking you away. Sometimes it's stuff, sometimes it's cars, houses, just like Solomon. Got to have the nicest house, the, big, the buildest, ha biggest house, all that stuff. That becomes what's important to us. Houses, all of this stuff, what's going to happen to it? It's going to burn, right? It's all going to burn someday. I mean, you can't take it with you, can you? I used to say I'd never seen a hearse pull in a U-Haul. And then uh, somebody sent me a picture of a hearse pull in a U-Haul one day. So <laughs> I can't say that anymore. But we can't take it with us. So as we always close, let's just take a few minutes and close in prayer and, and think on those three points. You know, Lord, is there, ask, ask the Lord these questions. Lord, is there anything in my life that's competing for you? 
for my time with you? Or, or am I truly, am I, am I okay? Am I, am I financially, am I, am I supporting the Lord? And, and I'm not even speaking about this church. Am I giving to the Lord is, is, or is, is, this, is my entertainment at the top of that pillar? You know, what two pillars are standing outside of your home? What do they say about you? Standing outside of your life and outside of the temple, this is where you go to get strengthened. This is where I'm going to get strengthened. So we'll take a few minutes and go before the Lord and ask him about you and your life. So Father, we just come before you tonight. Lord, and self-reflection is always hard. It's not something that we like to do and it's not something that Sometimes we think we don't even need it because, oh, we think we're good. I got that Christian thing down, not me. But Lord, may tonight be the night that we open our heart and truly allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us. Truly allow you to, well, make some changes, do some cleaning if necessary. So as you go before the Lord on your own, just spend a few minutes with him in prayer. See what he might want to speak to you tonight.